Hey everyone, and welcome to Vertical Playpen, the podcast all about adventure and experiential education. I'm your host, Phil, and joining me today on the podcast is an organizational development consultant, Mike Cardis. So we think back to the early sort of like organization development sort of pieces, right? So there's something called the National Training Labs, NTL. Um, in like management science, it's a really well-known group. So NTL back in the 50s and stuff, um, we're really big on looking at group dynamics and psychodynamics amongst organizations. Mm-hmm. And if you, were, if you were an employee back in the 50s and 60s, there were these things called T groups, T, like letter T groups. And the idea was that you would get a group of mixed people from different companies together in a room and they'd be together for three or four days. And the facilitator would just get folks in a room and the facilitator would then say, okay, let's begin. And that was it. There was no structure, mm-hmm. no guidelines, no goals were defined, no objectives were defined. It was a purely psychodynamic experiential approach. Some teams fought, but the team was forced to reflect upon their biases and their assumptions they brought to that meeting room, how they ran meetings. They were also forced to, in real time, identify their norms of the team, go through why they're there, who's there, the skill sets, and they collectively work through that. And it's that experiential tool of allowing folks to sit in ambiguity Mm -hmm. and just not find, I don't want to say find joy, because that sounds almost like we're being sadistic, but to find calmness or to find to accept that right now you're slightly confused and say right now I'm confused or right now I feel unsure what to do let's just sit on that for a while or let's kind of take a discussion around that and let's figure out where do we go and that's what experiential learning at its core is right that's the sort of early Kurt Hahn stuff outward bound schools it was saying give these kids an experience that doesn't have any structure about loosely structured boundaries around it and through the experience, as long as they're safe, they'll figure out how to make sense of the world. And that's what we do as experiential people, is we give folks an environment. Sometimes it's overly contrived, I think. Um, sometimes it's not contrived enough. It's our role to figure that out. And we tell folks, you're going to feel confused in this room. Some of you might feel less confused. Some of you might feel more confused. But how we work through that and the tools you gain by working through that will make you better to handle situations like this in the future. Mm-hmm. And that's what our skill sets are. Ambiguous kind of facilitation where I'm going to go in and stuff might change and I'm going to see stuff on the flight. That gets to a point where I'm getting more comfortable now. But when I first started, it was unbelievably uncomfortable to be to think I'm I'm paying and I'm I don't I want to be heard more. I need to speak more to value, to to whether or not the dollar value is amount of me speaking. And now I know it's me speaking less. So it's like there's the, there's been the spectrum of learning in my experience around that comfort. Yeah, and I think it's it's tough and I I firmly believe so when we look at when I'm doing work inside organizations there's something we call um as far as developing the roles. Let's say you're going to be um uh, a director of a program we use a, a relatively sort of basic way to kind of say, how do we define what this role is? And if the person is big enough to fill that role. So as you go up an organization, 
different roles, different qualifications. And, and we looked at, you know, we call information processing, um, skilled knowledge, values. And there's another part that we call wisdom. And wisdom is one of those things that when we try to measure it or understand it, we say wisdom really is, does a person in that role know how to appropriately behave and communicate inside that role? And so that more mature, not mature, that more, that facilitator has greater comfort at the ambiguity. That's part of knowing how to, how to play with that, right? So it's like, if people feel uncomfortable and they say, hey, Phil, I don't like this. I don't feel comfortable. What do you want me to do? How you handle that person in that time, that's that wisdom. You could tell them, shut up and do what I told you. That may not be the best choice in that role. Or you could calmly talk to them, explain to them what you're doing, and in the real time, be able to help that person be part of the process and come along with you. But that's that wisdom factor. Mm -hmm. And I think early on in my career, when I was doing a lot of ropes course stuff, high high rope stuff down in South Carolina and some work um, in New York, I remember we, we created a, 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 a different way. Um, this isn't very unique, but uh, based upon my lifeguard training, and I think I read it, an article too somewhere in it, we created a way to, almost, to partner up experienced ropes course facilitators with the newbies, the new folks. And we would literally tell them, and we would say, hey, the reality is, Mike, you're going to be with Phil for the next two hours. Phil, what I want you to do is I want you to talk to Mike about every single thing you're seeing as that person climbs the wall or goes through that course, verbally just talk them through what you're looking at, what you're seeing, what you're thinking, and just like verbal diarrhea, just talk to Mike so we can sort of hear what's going on inside your head. And you may say, Mike, there's a lot inside my head, but just do your best to talk to Mike. What are you noticing? Foot placement, ropes. What are you looking at? What do you see right now? What are you hearing? That way, so Mike, the newbie, can get experience on hearing inside your expert brain all the multiple things you're looking at And the hope behind that is to create sufficient interaction between the new facilitator and the experienced facilitator to to, to share some of the wisdom to be able to hear what they're doing to increase their knowledge faster than having to go through the process themselves. Does that make sense? So it's the same thing in that wisdom factor is I always think some of my best experiences when I was younger were being partnered with other facilitators who did things much different than how I did did things. Mm-hmm. And I'd watch them and I'd say, I would never do that. But somehow it worked. I don't know how they, and I would, I would watch them and I'd say, how, how do they make that work? And it, it's even with the wisdom piece, and I'll use another example. So my, when I do like field work or field initiatives, like team building prop stuff, I don't like very physical things like human knots, trust falls. I don't like people touching each other very much. I don't like physical, I like more mental things, puzzles, group challenge kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But my buddy, Jim, he loves the physical stuff. And so when we go to like the NBA, so I, I do a lot, a, lot, a lot of work with the, um, the colleges locally, a lot of NBA programs. These are business students. I'm like, Jim, chill out on the physical stuff. Like don't make them do the crazy hoots and the hollers. But somehow Jim makes it work every mm-hmm. single time. Mm-hmm. And I watch him and, and he'll say, Mike, let me do what I got to do. And I'll say, you're right. I hired you. You're smart. I trust you, man. And, I, and, I'll, and I'll cringe. I'll see him. But I realize that like it works for him mm-hmm. and, that, and his wisdom with the groups and his experience he makes it work. It's interesting to watch those separations. Yeah. Whenever I'm, whenever I lead a training or I do a conference and I'm doing an activity workshop, I'll always say, I'm going to lead us through a, a bunch of activities. And if you don't like what I do, you have no obligation to do it. 
And also know that how I might lead something is not necessarily the way you will have to lead it. For me, personally, and I, I, I may have brought this up uh, in a previous episode, but low elements um, in any actually initiatives like uh, Chocolate River or any of that kind of stuff, I don't like the stories. Uh, partly because it, I just, I find them to be a little patronizing sometimes. So I, and also, I and even when I do it with kids, they see, all right, well, you're just putting poly spots on the ground. They're, like, <laughs> it's just a rope I'm swimming across. It's, it's nitro, it's a lava. And, but, that, but I totally agree that I have seen people run that that way. And yeah. it is flawed people. It's like amazing. And the, they tie in analogy to it that's so beautiful. And that's awesome. That just not is, has never been me. And it took me, it did actually take me many, many years before I felt comfortable dropping the stories because I was taught with the stories so i would do them and i would never i would never drop and every time i'd be like uh never felt truly bought in and any group that i worked with saw that i wasn't truly bought in so that negatively affects then their ability to buy into and and it took me a long time to be able to just get rid of it so we say a lot in the corporate world is that you know oftentimes we need more chefs and less recipe followers Right, so the example you use is sort of following the recipe is, right, if I learn at age, let's say I go to a camp and I'm a, what do they call those folks there? Like um, I'm a camp assistant or I'm like, I'm, I'm like a junior volunteer at the camp. Mm-hmm. And I learn from my facilitator how to tell this nitro story of crossing the magical bridge and there's alligators and the princess on the other side. And then, then I begin to sort of believe that that's the way to, to do it. And I follow the recipe, even when the recipe no longer works, right? So you use an example of if you see the group is rolling their eyes, like to use it, use an analogy like that with a corporate group, they would say, it's tough because if you're doing corporate team building, you're already fighting. This is playing games, this is kid junk. And if you throw a story at them like that, it totally, maybe you can handle it as a, as a corporate facilitator, but it makes it really hard for you. And so- we think about too is how do you allow every facilitator, even people who are super experienced to have multiple experiences of other folks leading the activity. And from that, be able to kind of see like a chef, how do I take parts of your recipe, parts of your recipe, parts of my recipe, or parts of my experience and create a similar, a similar cake, but it has my, my feeling to it, or I can, or I can adjust the cake based upon, based upon the environment. If I'm in Colorado or somewhere else, I can shift it. But that takes, I think that takes a purposeful effort of people to break things and do things different. And I remember years ago, I was reading an article where I was at a, I think I was at like an AEE conference actually. And we were talking about how do we begin to develop new activities, new variations. And, uh, and several of us said, well, the way I make things up is I'll only read the opening paragraph of the activity, des- uh, the activity description and I'll put the book away. Or I'll kind of look at an activity if it's written up and I'll read like four bullet points and I'll stop and I'll run the activity and see what happens. Right. So it's grabbing small bits and mixing it together in new ways and kind of saying like, hey, that's where innovation and variation actually happens. The fancy term we use is called exaptation. So E-X-A-P. TIV, exaptive. So it's taking existing materials or tools and using them in unique or unused ways. And we think about a cliche example is like the microwave, right? So there's a gentleman at a lab, he had a Hershey bar in his pocket. He walked past this big machine 
the Hershey bar melted. Suddenly he said, hey, something's going on here. He was able to exact the existing machine technology to create a microwave. And now we have the microwave. So it wasn't something brand new he made up. There was an existing tool or process or something. And he took it and, and changed it just enough to make a unique product. And that's how innovation happens in our field, I think. It's how it happens in any field. Is We take a PVC pipe or we take a, this silly fidget cube I have here in my mm-hmm. hand or we take something and we vary it a, a little. And those variations increase till we have a whole new product or or a system behind things. To put a plug in for our own book, Tinker, that's pretty much the exact topics we discuss in that because what we were realizing, even internally, we were wanting to come up with a book, an activity book. We were writing down our favorite activities and we found out that, uh, key punch, let's say key punch. Yeah, that's a pretty uh, good example. That we would say, oh, I one of my favorites is key punch. I would write up how I do it. You would write up how you do it. We'd look and they were completely different. The, you know, the activities name and the skeleton structure of it was sort of similar, but the ways that we facilitated the, all of the rules and the variations and the different parameters were different. And I think that I guarantee, almost guarantee if you took a handful of people who facilitated for 10 plus years and you asked them to list their favorite activities and there was, there was similarities. And then you asked them to explain those activities. You'd find there was 10 different activities to put it for those people who know summer camps who are listening to this. If you've ever gone to a summer camp and you've sung a song, one of their classic songs, and then you go to another camp and they'll sing the exact same song, the lines are different, and you'll be like, what? This is the same. So how is it different? And it's exactly what you're suggested. Someone took something, just changed it, tweaked it, and then it's a brand new thing. And uh, that's very, very exciting for people who are trying to innovate and come up with activities. But also, no, if you if you come up with a brand new, and I'm doing air quotes, brand new activity, it's not new. Someone is, It's somewhere out there probably already to a degree. That's the exciting thing of being authentic and unique to your own facilitation style because you're not going to copy everything verbatim. It really right. will struggle to work verbatim. Well, and I guess that also comes back to our earlier discussion of as you're facilitating these things, it's also recognizing that every group or every team will internalize the rules and the structure and the process and how they do it differently almost every single time. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I mean, I, I can think of even that um, nail balance or porcupine progression, mm-hmm. whatever you kind of call yep. it. Right. Like I've, I've led that with the same group, maybe like eight or nine times. Um, and every time it's like based upon who's there, how they hear the directions, what they understand, they go about it in a slightly different way. Mm-hmm. And that's, I guess also as a facilitator, thinking about our work is being open to asking people, hey, I saw you went about it that way. I've never seen it that way before. Can you explain to me like what, how you did that? Walk me through that. And, and almost being able to, this goes to a different philosophy, um, we call it solution-focused, is almost being able to identify, we say, if we can find the unrecognized differences that make a difference, how do we pull those points out? So I'll use an example with the, even the activities and repeating them is, let's say I'm working with a corporate team and the corporate team says they, they, they have low trust. We've lost trust, for example. And normally, like one of my go-tos with corporate teams would be uh, Jim Kane's uh, PVC closed network. The PVC pipes, you have 27 pipes, connectors, blah, 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 put them into a closed network. 
that activity is great for corporate groups. And I'll, I'll vary it. Sometimes I'll have two teams, one team, we'll do two teams on for two minutes, on, off teams, whatever, it's fun. But while they're going through that activity, if I know they want to focus on trust, I will almost front load it and say, as you're going through this activity, be thoughtful about, but even before that, we'll define trust as a team, how trust looks. But then I'll say, if you're showing higher trust in these areas you said trust are happening in the team, what will you notice happening inside your interactions? So you're planting it, you're planting the, the solution there. And then as you're going through the activity, sometimes I'll do a concurrent stop and I'll say, pause, just pause an activity for a moment. You said as a team, if we're seeing more trust, we'll see the following things. Are we seeing these things right now? And then at the end, I'll kind of almost pull up in the processing part, the things they wanted to see. And I'll say, hey, I noticed a difference in this. Walk me through that. So you're trying to also, even with the activities and the variations, you can vary any activity to fit the client's needs, the mm-hmm. hopes. It's also saying, how do you help them through that interaction, see how they're acting different or a difference that makes a difference inside that process. And then, and then if you can pull on that thread and say, huh, how can you replicate that in a different environment? And, and that's a way to also, I think, as your facilitation skills to create the innovation and the difference, that's where you can vary the same activity with a group multiple times. Yeah, there's whenever I'm presenting at a conference, you're going to get people who want to know new, all right? Like, give me the new stuff, give me the new. And I think that what I often tell people is, you should get to a point where maybe you're using stuff that you know it works in a certain way repetitively in a, in a certain way. Like I'll use the same activities with similar groups, but I don't get bored of them. And the reason I don't get bored of them is because exactly what you described. I've not really done many activities that have had exactly mirror image replication in the end result because every group is different. I've even worked with groups who... Uh, who I've worked with before on previous years, and I've worried, oh, I'm, I have to come up with brand new stuff. But then I realized there's one extra person in that group who wasn't there last time, and how much that changed. And also the awareness that because someone had prior knowledge to how something worked the first time, that that may enhance, and, and sometimes not enhance, the performance of the group the second time around. It's like when you do um, the uh, activity Zoom, the book. Oh, yeah, yeah. right. If someone has ever seen it before, it, you almost do it assumed that the mystery is ruined because they understand the image zooms but actually they'll come up to you and say oh phil i've seen this before do you want me to stay quiet and i'll be like eh, nah, let's see how it plays because i'm intrigued by watching how they manage their experience in this with the group how much are they going to get guide and is, uh, is their influence going to enhance or negatively affect the group so I think that it's always intriguing to repeat activities. It's always intriguing because every group is going to react differently. And it's funny you mentioned Zooms. I mean, in that same experience, I remember when I was a younger facilitator, I had the same fear. And then then eventually, at some point, I kind of, I, I realized that if somebody has experience or knowledge that they can use to actually help the team or the group, if they're in a workplace they're expected to share that knowledge or expertise. You wouldn't tell somebody in the workplace, hey, you've been successful selling to this client before. Don't tell anybody about it. Please don't, yeah. don't help us. Just sit there and stare at us. Yep. You would tell them, Mike, you've sold to this client before. Share with us how you did that, what worked through the process. And so I realized that if I ask people to be quiet because they've done the activity before, I'm not actually doing my best to recreate the workplace environment that they're expected to be a part of. 
And the funny thing is, like Zoom's a good example is we've also rec- recognized that's also the curse of subject matter expertise is if I've done this before and I'm trying to explain to the group, but nobody else has, are they listening? And, mm-hmm. and you've seen it, Phil, oftentimes that person who's done before gets really, really frustrated because they know how to do it, but they're either communicating it in a way it's not being accepted or the group's not listening to them or the group doesn't understand it because they haven't experienced it the same way before. And so they're getting frustrated Mm -hmm. and you can use that person. I'd say, Hey, Phil, you mentioned to me, you've done this before. Walk me through. How did you feel? What was your frustrations? what did you notice about the group as you were going through that? And they'll say, you know, I felt really frustrated because I knew how to do it and no one was listening. And they're they're like, Phil, we're listening. We didn't understand what you meant that the blue thing is a rooster's head. So it's a good way to also pull that difference out to sort of say, um, and I wrote an article about this is saying that, you know, in team building or experiential activities, if someone's done it before, uh, it's the same thing where folks ask me sometimes if they can use their, their phones to Google things. And sometimes I say, no, I say, you know, but, but then I think I go, well, if they have access to knowledge that can help them get through the activity and they can use it, is that okay? And that's, it varies, but I always think about that. I go, mm-hmm. if, if, if you're in a workplace and you know how to do something, then you should share it. Yeah. No, it perfectly replicates real life, which is ultimately <laughs> so, what well, some of the point of what we're doing, right? Like well, we're not teaching an, people uh, to get better at doing Zoom again. <laughs> <laughs> if you <laughs> ever run into that one? book, you'll be lucky. You have these exact same people. Thank, you'll be thanking me. You know? Well, and sometimes what I'll do, if we're doing like um, uh, internal management coaching or even like performance coaching and we're doing like the nail balance activity, uh, like I'll, I'll let them go for three to five minutes, maybe. And I'll say, okay, each team choose one representative. And at this point, we've already gone through what coaching is, coaching conversations, sharing information. And I'll say, everybody choose one volunteer. Volunteer, please come with me outside. I'm going to show you how to solve the activity. So I bring the volunteer outside. I talk to them. I show them how to solve the activity. We practice for a little bit. I go, okay, now you're welcome to go back to your groups. But hang on, there's constraints. There's rules. Number one is you cannot touch the nails. Number two is you have to verbally communicate to your team how to solve this challenge. You can't draw anything. You can't, you know, I'll 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 vary the constraints. Now talk them through the process. And that's similar to being a manager, right? So you maybe have experience in building spreadsheets or running a tooling machine, or you have experience in dealing with um, highly critical medical patients. And now you have to explain this to a team of five people. How do you communicate that? And they know you know how to solve it. How do you get it out of your head? And, and that's a good practice to kind of say, now that we've done this process, how do we take the theory we put back in coaching, the actual activity, and now tie that back to a workplace experience? Mm-hmm. So it's good. It also vary the activities, I think. How did you even start an experiential ed? So I, I was thinking about this. When I was in middle school, my best friend, his father was a caretaker on a, on a really large estate, 400 acres. They had a little working farm. And uh, my best friend worked there. So I started working on the farm with my friend. We were, we were middle school. We, you know, we paid very little. A lot of work. It was fun. You get my best friend, Milan, grow potatoes, grow flowers. At that point, I realized I enjoyed being outdoors, nature, science, ed, um, and my father, who was an educator, an administrator in a school district, he said, well, you should do some volunteer work somewhere. And so I got a volunteer job at a, like a local 
large working farm that was like, you know, people came, they did workshops, it was that stuff there. And so I, I, I was a volunteer, either early, like freshman year or middle school, somewhere in there. And they did like some team building stuff, right? So kids, school groups would come to this farm. They would learn about the farm, but a big part was just sort of doing team building stuff, experiential you know, um, birthday lineup, um, human knots, fast pass, you know, the basic sort of like Carl Ronke sort of like games. The first we- 10 that you ever learn. It's <laughs> <laughs> always the same. <laughs> yeah. And I, I really enjoyed those. And that gave me, if I look back now, that gave me an early interest in like group dynamics. Um, so it must've been there. And then, and, and oddly enough, like I went to school for, um, for entomology. So studying insects, I ended up going to, um, Paul Smith College in the Adirondacks mm-hmm. of yeah. New York here. Yep. And then I uh, transferred to Clemson University, went to Clemson for a little while, studied entomology. And while at Clemson, I started working in their adjudicated and at-risk youth programs. I was teaching science in the programs. And also a big part of this, the program was there, there was a huge ropes course there, low elements, high elements, because the university had it. We had um, two ropes courses, one high, one like low uh, and one and then ground elements. Mm. And I learned that stuff there. Um, and at first, to be sincere, at first I thought it was kind of silly. I thought, you know, I'm teaching. These folks are playing games. Like, how is this a pro- back to the school? And then I started learning it and I and I found this group dynamics, there's interactional pieces, and I really enjoyed it. That was where I got my ropes course certification. I got training. I got a lot more high rope stuff there. Started doing a lot of climbing. Um, and got kind of the bug. Mm-hmm. So I started reading more books. I found research. I found a lot of, a lot of early product adventure stuff. Um, and then fast forward a bit, my father became ill. Um, he died in 2006 and I wanted to get back to New York. I missed being near him. I missed New York. So I, uh, got a job working for the department of environmental conservation. And there it was science said, but, but it, was, it was summer camp and mm-hmm. summer camp. You do a lot of group dynamic stuff. Mm-hmm. And had a chance to use the stuff I learned at Clemson and create really fun programs there. And so that was nice. It was science and we were doing team building. I got, again, did a lot more reading, got a lot more involved in group dynamic stuff. Then fast forward, I met Christine. Christine is now my wife. We were dating. I moved to Buffalo, to be Buffalo, New York, to be with her. And I needed a job. So I, I took some odd jobs in the area that were miserable. Right? I mean, I, I took one job. I worked in a, a huge like warehouse and they would bring in like, returned or broken down items in like these trucks and they would dump it in the huge pile. And our job was to take the items out, take a picture of them, list them on eBay and resell them on eBay. So it was like a big eBay reseller place. It was, it was, it was, it was a job. I had to make money. Right. So in there, in my education, there isn't a lot of jobs for team building entomologists, (laughs) learning development guys. Um, And I was new to the area. So, and then eventually I found this corporate conference center um, outside of Buffalo and Java, and they did corporate team building. And mm-hmm. I thought, well, I, I, I can do a ropes course stuff. I can do corporate team building. And I cold called them and they go, yeah, we hire contractors time to time. Why don't you come out and meet with us? I met with them. The general manager said, yeah, we, we, we do contracting and they didn't pay a lot of money, but it was a good gig. And they, they hired me as a contractor within a year. They made me their I was their first and still their only director of team building and recreation on sites. And that brought, that brought corporate groups in. So a huge mm. corporate conference center outside of Buffalo, big groups came in, corporate groups from all over, right? All over Buffalo, Rochester, Western New York. And I did team building there for three years. And that's where I really got more of the corporate experience. So I started reading a lot more like 
business books and corporate books. And I remember, I think I told you when we talked last time, like one of the earlier influences in my life was uh, that Sam Sykes book, Raptor. Mm -hmm. Like when I was doing corporate training and when Raptor came out, that was like my Bible, like literally, because that was because Sam wrote it in a way that was focused on corporate groups and adults. And it was relatively easy activities to do that you can sort of spew into other, other areas. And I'm a huge fan of Sam Sykes. And he was a big influence in my life when I first started doing this work. And conference over three years, uh, eventually in 2007, they fired me. We had a hard time getting along. I realized I may not be the best as an employee sometimes. Um, and then I went independent. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I went independent in 2007, a lot of my work was strictly team building, right? So I uh, did university orientations. Actually, my first paid gig. So I went independent in 2007. I think it was, I forgot when it was. Within three weeks, I got a orientation at a, at a, at a small college in Syracuse. And so I did a lot of team building work, but that eventually grew and developed and developed. And now I, now oddly enough, now I do a lot less team building stuff, but a lot more like large scale organization development. So strategy, um, I go into corporate conference rooms with a suit and tie and a flip chart paper. And we create, I mean, I, I was part of a team. It's a large manufacturing plant that created the North American strategy for like a multi-billion dollar organization. You know, I have clients all over and so it's grown through my experience in consulting to be a larger gig now. But it all started with that program out of Poughkeepsie, New York, that uh, a working farm the kids came to. The perception of experiential education from the outside world looking in, all right, and, and anyone really starting out, is that it's outdoor focused, summer camp focused, there's a lot of playfulness. How do you find the combination of experiential ed and the corporate world? Do you think they align? Do you think that experiential ed needs to do much better to try to accommodate some of the work that you're doing into the field? Because I think the perception is is not suit and tie corporate. They're almost seen as opposite each other sometimes. Corporate team building and then the rest, right? But it's not. It's all, you're reading Raptor, you're reading the books, you're reading the ronky books. And so, I, yeah, I'd love to hear thoughts on some of that stuff. When I started, I realized one of my strong differentiators was my experiential education, my experiential abilities and tools. Meaning that when I was at the corporate conference center, groups would use me as like the fun team building, but I would watch the guys who, who are what I am now do these like full day PowerPoint presentations. <laughs> and they would, and, and nothing to bash PowerPoint or lecture, it, you know, there's a point for it, but I would watch them and I would see people in the room just be, they'd be polite because they're adults, but they would just literally kind of like to zone out. And then we would do a three-hour team building block. And I'd hear some folks say, now that all makes sense. What we heard in that room, now we're doing this? Now I, now it makes sense. I, I, they, they were able to kind of intellectually connect the talk about crucial conversations or talk about Lean Six Sigma improved efficiency but when they did this stuff with me, they could say, oh, now I, they, they were able to connect it. And that's what I realized. That's a strong differentiator in the field. My skills in doing activities, whether they be balancing knives on marshmallows, whatever it is, is a differentiator. And a crowded field where everybody does the same, PowerPoints, lectures, how you differentiate yourself is what gets you more contracts and gets you recognized. Mm -hmm. And so the games do mix. And the reality is if you look at places like even like the uh, Center for Creative Leadership, CCL, they do a lot of team building stuff. They do gutter ball. They do rope handcuffs for infinite loops. They do fast pass. 
but no one que- like Kellogg, you know, or, or, or General Mills doesn't question CCL doing it because those guys are researchers. Um, so many corporate groups do the hands-on team building stuff. Mm-hmm. So how I think it melds is this. It's in the way you set it up. It's also in the way you present it. It's also how you work through the group with it. And it takes a level of comfort to sort of say to a group, we're going to do this activity. And the reason behind it is this, this, and this. And majority of folks get it. Now, you have to have thick skin, though, because there's all those corporate team building jokes, right? I mean, I I oftentimes laugh when my contemporaries can't take negative feedback or challenging feedback on their models or ideas. And they get, I go, reality is like, I'm a team building guy. Like, do you think we don't get trust falls, (laughs) holding hands in the woods? I mean, you have to have thick skin to kind of be like, no, we're not. And sometimes when a group starts, I'll make a joke and I'll say, okay, so um, we're going to start with trust falls. And they'll say, I'm just joking. We're not doing trust falls. We're not going to hold hands today. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll do some nice stuff to bring the group together. But I I use the experiential stuff as like a parallel process or a vehicle to create the connections. And so I think that we have to be careful, though, in the corporate world to say, we don't start with games. We start with the client's hopes, the client's needs. And it's one of the many vehicles we can use to get there. Now, it might just be, it may be an activity, maybe something as simple as I worked with a large IT unit and I had them get in groups and I, had, I said, hey, just do me a favor, visually draw out for me the intake to outtake map, how work goes into your department and out of your department. And on this wall, in your small teams, take post-it notes, take markers, and just sort of visually draw out for me how you do that. That's an experiential activity because now they're experiencing a shared thing together. They're creating their own, I give pretty broad constraints, draw your supplier to your output process. That's an activity. And they went through it together. And so we can say that's an activity. So I, I think the gamesmanship, I think the games sometimes take too much of a driver's seat as opposed to saying, we're going to use these as an experiential metaphor to help folks work through things. And, I, and I'll tell groups, I'll go, the reality is, Phil, let's say you and I work together. Whether you and I are doing um, a complicated Excel spreadsheet on pivot tables and outcome metrics, or you and I are building a PVC network together, the same feelings we have come out during that activity. It, it's there. And then the part behind it is also as, as a facilitator, how do you give meaning that matters to the activity and let the group work through it as opposed to saying, this is just an energizer or a fun game. Now, you can study if you want to, but nothing makes me more upset. Uh, actually, I've calmed down a bit on it. <laughs> then we need a fun icebreaker to make the meeting more, more exciting. And I used to get buddies. And I used to be much more aggressive when I was younger about this. So I matured on like my friends in the corporate world saying, hey, Mike, I need like a 15 minute icebreaker before our workshop because we have a long, boring training to do and I need something for this. And I'd say, then just don't do it. Like I'd say, don't do anything. Like we're here. Icebreaker is we're going to have a long workshop today. It's going to be kind of boring. Okay. Uh, I, I said, the reality is if you just, if you stick an icebreaker at the beginning of content and you use it to make things more fun, they're going to see it as a stupid activity you made them do to make things more fun for a boring training. Better way to do it is say, if we're going to use this icebreaker as an activity, how do we better incorporate that into the learning and the development? How do I make the metaphors appropriate? How do I make the questions appropriate? And is this activity 
the best means to achieve the ends I want to achieve at that time. If not, then I probably ought not to do it. It might be best for me to lecture about this process. And that's okay. It's, the games aren't the driver. It's, it's the group and being able to read them and the outcomes that are important. An episode that came out with Bob Ryan, and he brought up the concept that the challenge course is the thing that people see. The ropes course is the thing that people see, and they get blinded by some of that sometimes. But they forget that the program isn't that. That's not the program. And so you have to make sure that the program goals and everything aligns in it are are the things that drive it and not the shiny objects. And I think that that's the same when with the games, there's some ownership that facilitators have to have over not agreeing to do those things that you just said as well. Like if someone says, can you do this goofy thing to lighten the mood? If people say, yeah, sure, I can do that. Then what you do by doing that is delegitimize the importance of potentially that activity and saying, and so what high five will often have people will call us up and say, Hey, we've got an hour. Can you do, can you solve our trust issues in an hour? And we will tell them clearly then we're probably not the right people for you. That That's not something that we could do. And we wouldn't want to embarrass ourselves and yourselves in assuming that that is a real thing. And we're not going to lead you down that path of assuming that's okay. And we'll be honest about it. I get this all the time when I'm visiting family. They want me to play games. Hey, Phil, you're the game guy. Can you play and entertain the kids? I'm at the kids' table, yes, right? right? Like Because I'm the games guy. Because I have in my closet somewhere hula hoops and rubber chickens and everything, and they see it. And then they just apply that, their visual of that, and assume that that's, I'm, I'm like a goofy clown. And I think that we have to do a better job as facilitators at all levels, no matter if we're working in summer camp or we're working in the corporate world or kids to adults or sports team, whoever, that we are able to make ourselves seem valid and legitimate. And it comes from the way that we act around that stuff and say, no, 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 there's purpose behind this. I can do this, but. I'm going to have a reason for it. There's connection before content. And that's important. That's why I might do an activity here. I still find it interesting that folks have that belief. And it, it makes sense, right? I mean, the reality is like, Hey, I see, you know, like in my garage right now, I have like 120 hula hoops hanging off, 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 off a hook in, the, in, my, in my garage. Right. And so like, Oh, I'm like, you know, I go, yeah, we, we can do that. But like the funny thing is sometimes when I do it just for fun, it's, it's just not fun. Right. People are like, this isn't what I thought it would be. I, I go, well, cause you're, because this isn't meant to be fun. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's enjoyable, but like it's context matters. Uh, mm-hmm. And we're trying to kind of experiential learning has always been big to kind of say context matters an awful lot to apply any solution, whether it be a team building thing or even like um, a manufacturing concept or even like a corporate Let's use Agile, for example. So Agile right now is very popular in all worlds, Agile methodologies, Scrum, all that kind of stuff. But it's the same thing we saw when corporate groups wanted to apply like Lean Six Sigma to their organizations in a context-free environment. Same thing, experiential learning has always been big to say, the context matters greatly. What's the environment? Who are the people? What's the context we're going to do this within? And how is the context or the environment changing around us? What's the most What's the most appropriate, maybe most appropriate, what's the most appropriate or the best decision we can make in this context to help move the group forward in a progress step. And so as facilitators, we have to always kind of be mindful of our context. And if I'm in the context where a buddy says, hey, let's play a game, like sometimes I'll get the um, the big Lycra tube out, right? And I'll let my kids get inside the tube. And I'll, I'll have my uncle get inside there and bounce around that thing for a bit. And the context of having fun in the backyard, like I'll bounce them around and we'll have fun. Like I'll let my kids play the hula hoops. In the 
context of hula hoops playing, the hula hoop. If I'm with a corporate group, it's a much different context. And the way I set that up, I have to be aware of that. And so it's context matters so greatly. And even like youth groups. So if I'm with a, a middle school group and we're there to do pro-social development, or I'm there to kind of literally teacher just wants some team building for a little while. Like I'll drop in, I'll do that. That's at the context versus me being in a room. So I, I, I have a retainer with a, with a law firm. When I walk into my law firm client, my context is I wear a suit. My hair is done, right? I'm shaven. Cause for me to get into that room and be able to drop my markers on the table, they have to see me in their context. And I have to fit their context of what they think I ought to be doing. And if I can match that context to what they want, experientially, I'm opening them up to the experiential learning cycle, right? To kind of say, have an experience, talk about the experience, learn the experience, apply the experience, and at the end, reinforce something, change or unchange, or shift some behavior. But it has to be contextually appropriate. We have to be really thoughtful of our context. And I think you and I talked earlier, too, even about our attire, how we show up. The words we use has to match the person's context of what we ought to be. So I remember at the corporate conference center and my boss at the corporate conference center was a pretty serious, like button down kind of guy. A lot of times the groups were really large and I had to find contractors to kind of help out, you know, and, and so, so you call the local camps, you call your friends, you call your buddies who do ropes course stuff. And normally I'd say polo shirts, khakis, wear clean shoes, clean boots, make sure your hat isn't like tattered. Like this isn't, this isn't a camp. These are like corporate folks who are paying to come to have an experience. A really good buddy of mine who's a really good facilitator at camp. Great guy shows up and he has his Nalgene water bottle and like his duct tape, like shoulder holster thing. And like his dogs in the car, like he's wearing his dirty car hearts. Like his polo shirt is slightly ripped, but it's like a cool polo shirt, crazy beard. And I was like, dude, I had to hide. I literally had to take him and like run him up to the woods really fast. Cause if my boss saw him, I would have gotten challenged. And it was, and the corporate group that was there was a very straightly corporate group. And I was like, you know, I, I get it that you want to be who you are. And I, I accept that mm -hmm. context contextually. Like it just, this look is not the right look for the group we're working with. And, and you're, and you're going to, you're going to make the team building seem silly because you're being a caricature of something that's going to make them be less accepting and less absorptive of the learning. And, it's hard to get that through, I think, still. Our executive director, Jim Grau, often refers to it being a chameleon. When you walk into a group or wherever your participants are, be a chameleon and adapt to the culture that you're going to walk into because that is going to help you have that first impression that's going to get rid of the jaded roll of the eyes or you're going to be doing kumbaya circles. Of, and you can't be mad if people feel that way when you come in wearing a hula hoop across your shoulder. Like that's There, there are certain... <laughs> You're, you're setting yourself up there to immediately lose your group really early on. So I think that, yeah, absolutely context matters. So funny that you uh, mentioned LycraTube. As you, as you were speaking, I was thinking, wow, what? that popped into my brain, LycraTube. I have a LycraTube and nothing against the LycraTube. But when I was a young younger facilitator, I jumped on seeing that at a conference and I spent the 80 bucks. I immediately mm -hmm. bought a LycraTube. And I can honestly say I've used it with actual groups probably a handful of times in the 10 years I've owned it. And I've used it more as a fort building prop here at home with my daughter. That's not to say that the LycraTube isn't valuable, but I agree exactly what you're saying. There was a lot of times where I'll carry it in my car 
and I'll think, oh, I'm really excited to be able to use that, and there'll no opportunity presents itself. And it's that's okay. But if I try to shoehorn it in because I think it's cool and I know I've invested money in it, then it sort of ends up being this jarring effect in a program where I'm now bouncing people and saying and trying to say, this is about, you know, we've been working on trust. Let's test it. You know, it feels always a reach, a stretch. So uh, stretch, that's a funny little pun on LikeYouTube. But, you know, that sort of ties a bow on this kind of idea that we're talking about. Context, super, super, super matters. Mike, I apologize. We didn't really touch the questions I sent you, but... I loved this conversation, as I did our previous time that we talked that was unrecorded. I think that you're you're uh, cut from the same cloth. We we're, I, we excitedly talk about things that we're both excitedly passionate about. And so I appreciate you sharing lots of information. So thank you, Mike. Oh, thank you. I, I um, You know, it's funny. I know when I found you on Instagram, like I am a huge fan of High Five. And I'm a huge fan of the work that you're doing. And, and it's funny. I remember one more quick story like yeah. maybe not everybody but when i was a younger facilitator and i was new and you see this was before the internet was really as accessible as it is now like inside my mind i always thought like project adventure or high five they have some like special ropes coursey thing or some tool they're not showing the public that makes them be special there's something hidden behind their magical wall of ropes course stuff right they mm-hmm. have something that they don't want to show the world because it's so great to high five or project adventure, those groups, they, they have this thing they don't want to share. And, and you believe it at your heart, right? And, and then you go there and I went there for a training and you look around and there's cool stuff, but like, it's kind of the same stuff you see most places, right? So it's, it's interesting. And, and that's why I, 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 I realized through work with high five and other groups like, like yours, that it's the people, it's the interactions, it's the consistently, it's, always realizing that you have to stay humble and you can find other people and learn from their experience and increase your facilitator knowledge by seeking out other people and people who may not be like you. When I did early training in Clemson, I would tell my facilitators, I want you to go to the accounting groups, go to the English lit room, watch how they talk, find people who are nothing like you, who are so far outside your comfort zone, who have maybe never been outside and don't like dirt. Learn from those people, find things that disrupt your existing thinking patterns and pull that back to your experience to kind of say, how did I feel inside this? What did I do with that? So, Mm -hmm. so thank you for, thank you for the great work you do. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playtime. And then what about thanks for listening to High Fives podcast. Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for getting. I think I'll pass the guy. <laughs> <laughs>